Welcome to the Legends of Oral Regeneration by the Osteology Foundation. One host, one guest, and a whole bunch of experience and expertise. Meet the people behind the names and get unique insights. On behalf of the Osteology Foundation, I would like to welcome you to this Legends of Oral Regeneration podcast. My name is William Ginobile, and I'm the president of the Osteology Foundation. And so it's my honor and privilege to introduce our legend today, Dr. Bob Shellhorn. And so Dr. Shellhorn is someone that I've known for many years. He has an amazing uh, legacy of service to the profession of periodontology um, and his work in clinical practice and in clinical research. And uh, so what I would like to do before uh, I get into this is, uh, you know, welcome uh, Dr. Shellhorn. He's uh, tuning in with us today from Aurora, Colorado in the United States. Dr. Dr. Shellhorn. Oh, thanks, Will. It's a pleasure to be here with you today and to go into this, uh, well, your agenda as you have seen it. Okay, great. Well, it's good to see you. And uh, I'm just going to give uh, several highlights on uh, Dr. Shellhorn's curriculum vitae, which is extensive, but let me just uh, uh, highlight several of them. So he graduated in, back in 1956 from the Marquette uh, University School of Dentistry. And then later he received his certificate in periodontology uh, from the University of California and also a master of science in biochemistry from the University of California. And so Bob has had a distinguished career in perio and uh, he has been involved uh, through military service, basically from 1956 till 1969. And then later he transitioned into academia uh, and later became professor and chairman of periodontics at the University of Colorado School of Dentistry. And so during those years, he was involved both in academic periodontology, service to the profession, and then later embarked on a rich Uh, history and background in clinical periodontics extending from 1972 uh, to present day. And uh, so, you know, I've known Bob for a number of years. Uh, He is, uh, you know, the consummate gentleman. He knows the field of periodontology, especially as it relates to periodontal regeneration. And much of his early work in the field was fundamental to regenerative medicine around teeth uh, with osseous uh, bone grafting. And uh, as we go through our podcast today, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk more about it. Uh, You know, Bob, in terms of his service to the profession, has been very involved with the Academy of Periodontology, both as a past president, as a past recipient of the gold medal, which is the highest award that the American Academy of Periodontology bestows, and then his his role on the American Board of Periodontology as director. And so I could go on and on, uh, but I just wanted to give you a few highlights on all of the contributions of uh, Dr. Shellhorn. So, you know, let's, Bob, let's go ahead and launch into the first question. And I think as a part of this podcast series, 
it's so valuable uh, for our young people uh, to hear about how careers started, uh, how people got involved in the field, and uh, it really serves as an inspiration and uh, much of your success has inspired me as well as an academic uh, periodontist and someone involved in clinical research. So Bob, you know, how did your career start and what do, what do you think were some of those key milestones that contributed to your success? Okay, well, I have to tell you that from the time I was in uh, uh, junior high school, I wanted to be an architect. And to that end, when I was in high school, I took an apprenticeship to be a carpenter. And I completed my apprenticeship in high school. And then I got my uh, license, uh, or I should say, uh, uh, ability to uh, to uh, practice and be a contractor and be rated by Dun & Bradstreet. So I did that. All of this was background for architecture. I also got my real estate license and business opportunity license to, again, further my role in the background for architecture and went to the University of Illinois uh, in Champaign-Urbana to the School of Architecture. Uh, however, uh, along the way, uh, other things happened, and one of which was that I met this young lady that uh, really struck me. Right, This is right in high school, and when I graduated from high school, I saw her again once and went over to her home, called and met her and uh, spoke with her and her folks for a few hours and went back home and told my mother that uh, I just was with the girl I'm going to marry, which I did two years later. So from that time on, from graduation of high school, I worked as a uh, well, I worked in, in uh, uh, designing and building uh, garages, uh, houses, whatnot else in the summer months, and selling real estate. But then I went to the University of Illinois that fall, and then I would come back once a month, and that went on for a time period. She graduated from high school, went into dental hygiene, and then one of my visits back to Wisconsin to see her. Uh, she informed me that she wanted to marry a dentist. At that point in time, I had been to a dentist three times in my life. I had no idea what a dentist was, did, etc., aside from what little experience I had. And so I looked at her and I said, you really want to marry a dentist? And she said, yes. Said, okay, I'll become a dentist. And so at that point in time, I dropped out of architecture. I had to go through pre-dental to get into dental school. So that went on for another year and a half before I finally got into dental school. And then, of course, I went through dental school. I graduated from dental school. And once I did, uh, all of us uh, at that point in time that weren't in the military before had to go in the military. I went in the Army. I took an internship at Fitzsimmons Army Hospital. And during that internship, uh, we had Ballant Orban as our periodontal uh, consultant. And Dr. Orban, uh, who, well, within the profession is so well known because he, he came from Vienna as a professor of periodontology there, then Loyola University in this country. And then he had a private practice in Denver, Colorado. Plus, uh, he gave preceptorship, preceptorship courses in Colorado Springs. So many, many of the well-known dentists, periodontists at that time, that is in the 1940s and 50s, were, uh, well, took their preceptorship under Melvin Orban. I was fortunate enough to have him 
uh, as our consultant during this rotating internship. Bottom line was that he was out often enough because he had a sabbatical going on too. So he actually gave us this full preceptorship in periodontics and gave us an option that if we wanted to do that, he would let the Surgeon General know that we could change our MOS, that is, what your duty is from a general dentist to a periodontist, which he did for me. So I became a periodontist in the Army and was stationed at Fort Ord, California after my internship. Now, the other thing about this was that the I wanted to be a boarded periodontist, and so uh, this was the last year that they grandfathered in uh, the preceptorships. So it was important, he said, that I call uh, Harold Ray, who was on the University of California, and meet with him when I got to California to let him know that, uh, that I would be taking my board examinations, which could be four years later because I had to be practicing for four years. So I did go up and saw Harold, did talk to him. Everything was set. So now I'm on my way. I'm doing things, and I'm loving it, enjoying practice and so on. And I got involved with bone grafting at that point in time, but that's another story. The bottom line is I was in California for three years treating patients and then going on to Alaska. And then I called Harold Ray because he told me to call back in the fall of, 2000, of 1960, which I did only to find out that Harold Ray died of a heart attack. Since he died, I called B.O.A. Thomas on the board and uh, told him the situation. He said, well, I don't have any record of this. So you are not uh, board qualified. You have to go through a formal program. And unfortunately, uh, uh, Dr. Orban also died of a heart attack that same summer. So uh, I, I had to go back into a two-year program in order to be board qualified. And then uh, the, I, that, by that time, I'm married. I have five children. I'm thinking, well, I'll do it in the Army if I can. But since I had the MOS, I was doing it for six years already. Uh, they were not about to let me go back to school, so I had to resign to do that. And ready to do that, I found out that uh, an uh, individual who I'd sent a, an application to, named Perry Radcliffe at the University of California, met with General Bernier in the Army and said, I would like Shellhorn as a graduate student. So the general overrode the decisions of other people, and I went to the University of California in San Francisco to uh, work at, uh, to study periodontist. And also they stationed me at Letterman since I had been practicing for so many years that they uh, wanted to get some use out of me there. Well, originally this was a really doubter for me. That was a low point in my life because here I am practicing and now I've got to go back to school. But it was the most wonderful thing that did happen to me because in this time interval from 1956 to 1963, so many, many things had changed. As an example, anatomy, all of a sudden there's ultrastructure, there's a whole new dimension on microscopic anatomy. And biochemistry went from nutrition to, well, what's the trick? And oh, you know, the DNA. And I, I was so, I just got so absorbed in all these other things. And it was just like a whole new window of my life opened up. And I just, I was like a sponge. I couldn't soak up enough of it. So since I already had so much clinical practice behind me, uh, Dr. Perry Radcliffe was very good. He 
managed to manipulate my time, so I wasn't in the clinic that much, and so I was able to carry, well, I was able to carry 30 some credits every semester, in which they only allowed 15, but they, uh, he managed to manipulate that so I could get into all these classes and, and get more background and finally get a new foundation of what the biology was going on. And it was, it was like an open, opening up a life for me. So it was a major turning point in my life uh, because I, uh, they wanted to give me a master's in, in, uh, in microbiology, or not microbiology, pardon me, in, in histology and ultrastructure. But I said, no, I really want to go on with biochemistry more. So I was working on my doctorate, actually, for my biochemistry and finished all the basic coursework, uh, but uh, uh, my time ran out at the university. I couldn't finish one last class, so the Army pulled me out, put me to uh, uh, Fitzsimmons Hospital, uh, of which I served there. So it was a indirect route into uh, periodontics and finally to get into a, a permanent position. But now, uh, now I had the biology behind me, which is what, from that point on, uh, things changed quite a bit. So I better stop here because I've got to go on and on, and I don't mean to take away more time. Well, this is really fascinating, Bob. I mean, I think just the early stages of your career, talking about initially uh, involved in architecture, carpentry, uh, meeting the love of your life, her inspiring you to go into dentistry, and then all of these different people that you met along the way. Uh, uh, having that that meeting with Balin Orban, uh, really one of the you know founding fathers of microscopic anatomy within uh, periodontology, as you were saying, that was a period with uh, microscopy really advancing, and uh, what you could learn from that. I mean, I saw you had had this master's degree in biochemistry and everything that you had just highlighted, uh, you know, with your training program and having these opportunities for travel, uh, sounds like it was very formative for you. And then you also mentioned, by the way, you had five children uh, through all of that. So I can imagine there was so much of that balancing uh, that you had to do in those early stages of your career. You know, I, I guess I might ask you, you know, in terms of uh, your career. And I mean, you've inspired, I know you have, you know, a daughter in periodontology, uh, your, your, your children are so successful. You have a granddaughter in, in uh, periodontics. So your connection of family, juggling all of that, you know, and you were inspired yourself as a young person by uh, a variety of mentors, you know, how, how did you manage to balance you know, your early stages of your career uh, with all of the activities you, you had ongoing in your, your personal life? Well, uh, while I was in dental school, I, I was married by that time. And of course, I had to uh, earn a living uh, in addition to going to dental school. So I worked full time all the way through dental school. Uh, but that got me out in the community, uh, working as a night nurse, especially for several years uh, in the violent ward of a sanitarium, uh, where I'd have to put straight jackets on people at night and then try to treat patients during the day. So there, there were some ups and downs with this, but uh, no, it, it, it blended in. And it also uh, gave me opportunities. Uh, like in dental school, I found out that uh, I could get a, a research grant uh, 
to do delicate shingles research, so I did, mm. and uh, did some research on uh, rubber-based impression material. So I had, had a publication on that, and then uh, in my senior year, uh, I finished my requirements early. So I asked the uh, professor of, uh, of uh, uh, in our prosthetics department. I said, "Is there a is there anything in prost that uh, there seems to be controversy on that might be easy to answer?" He said, well, yes. He said, you know, there's always controversy on whether or not to use a facebow when we're doing mythology. And I had been a student of occlusion in college uh, because that was such a big item. It, to me, uh, if you want to identify dentistry in one word, it was occlusion. So um, I said, okay, well, I was interested in that because doing articulating uh, and, and then how to do this uh, in a more efficient way and to get a more accurate uh, instrument like a articulator and be able to mimic what the patient's jaw movements were, et cetera. So I did a study on that, actually got a publication out of it, the Journal of Prosthetic Dentistry. That was still when I was in dental school. Uh, bottom line is that I got involved in other things, and in the Army, uh, I got involved in bone grafting because a close friend of mine, uh, who was uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, he was the adjutant for the commanding general, but also uh, he had children that were our children's age, so we knew them from that, from church and so forth. And all of a sudden, I'm in my operatories. I have three operatories at Fort Ord in a barracks building type thing. And, uh, and then across from my suite, uh, the Exodonis was. I say sweet. These were barracks buildings, uh, and uh, that's where uh, patients were going in to get teeth extracted. And with 300,000 troop, uh, 30,000 rotating every uh, every week to two weeks, uh, we had a big turnover, and there were a lot of people coming into the clinics. But our, all of a sudden, I heard his name, and when I heard his name, uh, I said, hold on. And I went out in the hall. I called. I said, what happened? Uh, what are you doing? He said, well, uh, they have to take a tooth out. And I said, well, let me check. So I did, and sure enough, he had a deep intraboded pocket. I said, uh, you know, um, I was doing, well, in those days, we did gingivoplasty, gingivectomy, uh, uh, flap procedures, uh, either flap and, and bony contouring or epically positioning flaps, et cetera. Uh, but uh, to do a flap when you had a deep pocket defect, that didn't work very well by itself, and you couldn't cut away the thing. So that's when you took a tooth. I said, no, I said, I just can't see you losing a tooth. You've got this large exostosis uh, right lingual to it, so I'm going to have you back in, and I'm going to actually I'm going to clean this all out, and then I'm going to reflect the tissue and, and, and scrape some bone off and put it in there for you. I did that, and it healed. And it was successful. And 40 years later, uh, he called me from Iowa to let me know they still and he came out to Denver. And I thought, got a new radiograph on the tooth. And he still had the tooth with a like, complete bony fill on the site. So that really inspired me, not the 40 years later, but the time. And I started doing more and more grafting until I infant out to bone grafting. And then when uh, uh, neighbors in O'Leary published in 1965 uh, their classic paper. Uh, it, I was looking at what I'd been doing for the last eight years before. So it was really kind of a, 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 a wonderful uplift to see things like that happening and that they were being picked up by other people too. But when I got to Fitzsimmons, 
again, now in a different role, and I, not different role, I was chairman, head of the department of Perry there, but but then I got involved in other forms of, of drafting rather than just intraoral. So that kind of started the, kind of the um, valve in all these other applications. And of course, the with the basic science background, uh, uh, I was able to uh, establish some uh, uh, successful procedures that uh, those I tried to relate to others and, and then uh, it'd go on from there, the ongoing evolution. And the evolution, not ending, but tapering into uh, what the, the now the new uh, master of, of regeneration, uh, the person that I'm uh, speaking to on the phone, uh, who's in the, the newest evolution in, in regenerative therapy. And that's the way things have gone. And it's wonderful to watch this evolution. Well, you, you know, Bob, it's, it's really fascinating to listen to you give that history and how, you know, you were looking at tooth preservation through regeneration at a time when it wasn't really being done uh, that frequently. And uh, so, you know, giving that example of, you know, taking that, that bone from an exostosis and transplanting it into an osseous defect, you know, there were really only a handful of people in the literature who had done that. And uh, then that really, it seemed like that really jump-started your career as a, as a leader in the field. And so, um, you know, as you, as you share this with others and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, how the field has continued to evolve. Uh, you recall a couple of years ago, it, it seems like a couple of years ago, it's probably almost 10 years ago, the American Academy of Perio published the Centennial Series. And I had the, the, uh, the privilege to be able to write the, uh, that, that small piece on regeneration and your papers were a key part of that at the early stage with, you know, osseous graphs to promote regeneration. And, uh, you know, can you share with us, uh, you know, how that happened in terms of as you started to build that up and you were one of the, the first people to get this into the literature I, I can imagine there were skeptics at the time and people who were not doing these procedures. <laughs> and oh, yeah. how, did oh, yeah. you, how did that evolve? Well, um, I, I, it's just a matter of having cases. And in those days, uh, you, uh, if you didn't do anything, you didn't get new bone. And so bone grafting uh, became a part of it uh, because the debridement procedures, while sometimes you get new bone, it wasn't predictable. Yeah. Uh, well, anyhow, the... The grafting, intraoral grafts are all I was using, uh, and then uh, in the in the orthopedic literature, the the most uh, 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 the most highly effective way of growing bone is actually if they're going to use implants, is to transplant uh, uh, hemopoietic bone marrow with the cancellous bone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the orthopedic literature, and then the oral surgeons picked up on that for ridge uh, augmentation. And then I thought, oh, well, if it works there, then it should work around teeth because uh, they're doing it for ridge. So I did that around teeth. Actually, my first patient on that was a resident in, in prosthodontics at Fitzsimmons Hospital in 1965. And I, so I, I first of all learned how to do, uh, I went to the hematologist, and I learned how to do uh, bone marrow biopsies, a punch biopsy. Well, I shouldn't say punch, but a, not a circle, I think it was a circle tree fine needle that uh, what you do is make a, 
over the posterior iliac crest make about a quarter of an inch incision, of course, after cleaning the tissue and so on, but over the, uh, the posterior iliac crest, a quarter inch incision, and then put the trephine through that. It was a bevel with a sharp edge, and you'd actually work it through the cortex into the intramural spaces, and then you tap the spline, which would pick up a cord that would be about an inch long and about probably three-sixteenths of an inch in diameter. You could pull that out, and so I'd go back through the same little incision site and do maybe three or four cores. And so I talked to Bill about this, the, the resident, I said, Bill, you you have a full dentition. Uh, you've got other problems, but you had two teeth that had eight, seven, eight millimeter pocket defects, intrabony defects plus crestal bone loss. Uh, that uh, uh, that I, I had no way of treating. I couldn't get any bone intraorally from you for that. So I said I, I learned about this other procedure. They taught me how to do this. So if I'll have to have you, and I'll prepare the sites in the dental chair. But then I'll have to have you get up, drop your drawers, bend over the chair, and I'll prepare your back, give you a lot of aesthetic there, and take the cores out, which I did, and then put a Band-Aid over the site, uh, which he never had the aftermath with, nor I did I expect any, and then went about and grafted. And then six months later, when I re-entered those sites, which I was doing routinely with all bone grafts, I might add, because... It would vary how much fill you might get, and if it was enough that you could do osteoplasty or something to eliminate the the defect, then fine. If it wasn't, I'd do secondary grafting, etc. But all these are different facets of it. The bottom line is, six months later, when I exposed it, here was cortical bone, uh, three millimeters crestal to what the bone margin was previously on both sites, on those two sites, especially the, between the uh, lower canines and, and uh, lateral incisors. And so that was the first case of iliac grafting. From that point on, uh, I started doing more and more of that. But then, then the transition, it's not just the bone graft, it's all the other factors that, that relate to it. And so this race between the epithelium and and uh, and the an attachment to the tooth to get some mechanism to prevent the epithelium from going apically had always been the, the stumbling block, and so I was doing things like well like Henry Goldman did he published back in the 1940s when he did uh, he had a paper and he showed uh, uh, intrabody defect as a upper incisor. And he cleaned it all out, but then he did a gingivectomy down to the bony margin, uh, which was kind of a takeoff also with uh, Pritchard was doing with an interdental denudation procedure, where he he delayed, he did epithelial retardation. And so that whole concept, anything you could do to keep the epithelium back from the healing site uh, or prevent it in some way from doing it. So there are many, many epithelial exclusion techniques that evolved. And we were trying to use those and combine various things. It, it evolved. There are many facets to this. Uh, Virgin Elegard, as an example, would take the tissue off and put a free digital graft because that, which she knew, would take at least two weeks before there'd be any tissue, the epithelium getting back into the wound site. So when she'd do grafting, they'd take routinely. But that was doing a gingival graft over the over the uh, bone graft. So all, I'm sorry, just so many facets on this, and uh, we just expanded it gradually into the, the arena with all these other qualifications and things to do to enhance the, the final outcome. Uh, we got into also instead of taking it from autographing, I was always an autographer. I fought. 
tooth and nail against allografting. As I said, that there's a potential for disease transfer. I just didn't like that idea. But uh, I was when I was in California. Uh, uh, Dr. Uris, who was a pioneer and he was an orthopedic surgeon, uh, they would have what they call a line club. So I would sit on those periodically. He was doing uh, demineralized free dry bone grafting, the allografting, orthopedically, and was talking about that and so others. But, but, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And then my closest friend, Jerry Bowers, who was the man who really showed regeneration truly, he, he finally established that with his head of studies. It's a Probably the biggest, uh, well, to me, the biggest event in, in, in periodontics is that they proved the, had proof of principle and that it worked. And so no longer was there a question that is it regeneration or isn't it because of our new definition of regeneration. But uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on, and I apologize for that. Well, you know, Bob, it's fascinating to listen to you talk about this history on and you know your experience with intraoral and extraoral, you know autographs. And I think, you know, when you give the example of meeting Marshall Urist and the discovery of BMPs, you mentioned 1965, you know, the classic paper in Science on auto induction, mm-hmm. you know, bone morphogenetic proteins back in that time, and you were involved with the initial bone grafting studies. I mean, you you could sense based on the clinical findings that you were seeing that these bone grafts, they had that osteogenic potential. It wasn't just transplanting a bone. You know, these oftentimes as, as you were, you were taking bone cores or, you know, as you mentioned earlier on taking an exostosis or a torus and, you know, taking some of that bone and transplanting it, there was obviously a lot of biological activity. Uh, those studies that you did with Bill Hyatt, I mean, I think certainly were an underpinning of much of what we've seen. And, you know, still today, when people give presentations on what is the gold standard, we still hear about the use of bone autograft and how rich and many of the different biological factors, uh, you know, that that's present. I guess, uh, just knowing, uh, you know, some of our time, and I, one of the things that I would very much like to hear your perspective that I know our younger listeners would, would love to hear about is, you know, Bob, you have been so recognized as a, and respected as a master clinician. And then also what I think you've so nicely displayed is that you had such strong scientific underpinnings to what you were doing. Uh, you know, your training, and then you were an academic, you were a chair of a department, and you were very involved in teaching in academics. And so many, many of us find this balance between practice and clinical research, very challenging. And so, uh, you know, I would like to, to ask you is, is one of our, you know, final questions that, that I think really transcends all of you know, an academic life and a very successful practice career where you can be a key opinion leader. How, how did you blend those two pieces? Because you were publishing throughout your whole private practice career, uh, but also having that, that eye to the, you know, the biology, uh, the implications and understanding and, and 
bringing together the science with the practice? Well, it's just a combination. Uh, otherwise, you get piecemeal. And so um, I, I, all these things work together. Uh, if you do something uh, and it works, uh, and it's something that people aren't doing, well, it's nice to let them know that maybe here's something that works, so why don't you try it, that type of thing. Uh, and 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 because of that, then you get the in, interfacing more people, and you're doing things. But you're also getting challenges yourself, and it it gets away from a mundane practice, uh, such as in the military, the amalgam line, where that's all you did from you know the time you went in the morning till you got out in the evening. So uh, periodontics has never been a mundane thing to me, and there's always so many questions I'm asking about it that I want to know the answer to, and fortunately, there's so many wonderful papers coming out, and just to keep up with the literature and see all the advances that are being made, and as I think back over just a few years even, and 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 uh, and the outstanding people, uh, I've, I've I've been so fortunate in, in being uh, being associated uh, uh, directly or indirectly with so many outstanding people. I mentioned Jerry Bowers, he, a kindred spirit. As soon as we wanted a program together for the first time at, at the Army Institute, pardon me, at, at Walter Reed when they were giving a periodontal one week course. And so it was to everyone that wanted to come into it. But uh, Jerry came in from the Navy. And I was pulled in from Fitzsimmons, and we met there. And from that point on, we were like blood brothers. <laughs> so, so it it gets you socialized too. And you, it it's like, uh, and then you it's you you don't just take. You you have to give, and and the give and take is is uh, well the wonderful part about it. Uh, you're sharing and. Uh, and, and and other people share with you. That that's the way things just keep evolving. Mm-hmm. And along with that, uh, you you like what you're doing, and 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 you're getting paid to do it. Uh, you're not trying to just make a living. You're trying to enjoy what you're doing. So you have to find the happiness uh, in the field too. And I think that uh, uh, well, to me, is that. Uh, you you have to enjoy what you're doing if you don't do something else and and uh, the other thing is that uh, the patient I had the experience in dental school uh, having never been to a dentist well I've been to a dentist several times but my freshman year uh, uh, they they found out that I had an impacted third molar so at the end of the year uh, they scheduled me with the incoming oral surgeon who was put on a uh, uh, demonstration in the amphitheater that they had at Marquette University. That would be the patient for that. It was a horizontally impacted third molar, and uh, so uh, I, and because I was a dental student, uh, graduated in the first year, uh, they they assumed I knew everything about what's going on. I had I had no idea because I'd never had an extraction before. I never knew what was going on with the surgery, what to do afterwards. Bottom line. Uh, they put me in a chair, but it wasn't a chair. It was like a table uh, with with straps around it. So I was strapped in uh, across my headband, uh, my chest, my arms, hands, legs, feet. Uh, I was strapped on the table with a big drape over me, a little orifice, and they cranked my jaw open. And then uh, the oral surgeon came in from, I think it was... Uh, uh, not Chicago, well, whatever it was. He, he came in as a visiting uh, 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 oral surgeon, and he said, well, when I do uh, take out wisdom teeth, I like to have good uh, exposure, so 
I will make a flap from the distal aspect of the second molar, and I bring that out to the facial aspect of the canine uh, because I like a good reflection. Uh, why, I don't know. And, of course, the lingual the same way. But he's going about reflecting the flap, and uh, and then he says, and uh, I believe in, in uh, cutting, I, I take I chisel off all the bone that may be over the impaction because I want to take out the tooth in one piece. So he's chiseling with a mallet and chisel uh, the alveolar bone that was surrounding the impacted tooth. And about this time point in time, I'm out of my mind. Someone goofed. They forgot to give me an anesthetic. Oh my gosh. And if you can imagine what that's like, being strapped in, your mouth propped open, I couldn't say anything, I couldn't do anything, I couldn't move. And then finally, finally, he said that maybe something was wrong. He said, uh, are you, just quietly, because he didn't want to tell this to the audience, are you feeling that? And I remember vividly saying, aha. And he said, oh, well, but where, where's the anesthetic you used? Then, oh, you didn't give the anesthetic. So he gave me that injection. It was bliss. Oh, I, no, no more pain, fine. So then the next mistake is that they didn't give me any instructions. They just put a wad of gauze in my mouth, bite down on that, keep it in your mouth for as long as you can, and then that was it. So they didn't tell me to do anything for pain. Of course, they had sutures in from up to my canine and so on. And I'm at the time uh, working as a carpenter because this is my, I just got off, finished the freshman year. So I had to draw plans, designed, bought a lot, and was building a duplex. I was building it. I mean, I did all the carpet traps. I was doing that in the summer months so I could make money when I sell it. So I'm right in the middle of jostling a two by 12 by 24 foot joist that weighed 250 pounds because they were all heavy with moisture and trying to put them in for the floor joist and then working on an I-beam and whatnot. I'm on the job going out working, picking up 250 pounds and walking and putting it in place. Uh, until finally uh, my head was twisted sideways uh, and I was hurting. And uh, I finally that dawned on me and I looked in the mirror and I swallowed so much. No one gave me the instructions. No one gave me the anesthetic. And I'll tell you, the best experience about that is that I've never forgotten what it's like to be a patient and I've never questioned, never questioned a patient if they're having pain. And do you have proper instructions? Is there any question you have? And so that, that to me is part of it too. That patient uh, is you in the chair. Or better yet, it's one of your loved ones, be it your wife, your mother, your daughter, or son, whoever it is, but someone you love. I don't mean someone that you you love to get that way, but seriously. If you, if you wouldn't do it to yourself uh, or one of your loved ones, then don't do it to someone else. Mm-hmm. And what you do should be the same as it was to yourself. I think that's the key thing. You have to have patient empathy. And I learned the hard way. Uh, and believe me, I've been empathetic of patients ever since. Well, you know, Bob, this uh, I think you epitomize, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, master clinician. And the way, you know, those uh, who have had the uh, opportunity to hear you talk about, uh, you know, regenerative dentistry and all of the work that you've done for 
periodontology, the profession of periodontology, uh, can can see your your depth and breadth of experience and and giving us that vignette on how important it is to care for the patient and have all of those other components of the care from the very beginning until the completion of the procedure and the follow-up. And this was something that I also felt was very important listening to your lectures and you talked about the follow-up, you talk about the home care and all of these aspects are so critical in uh, periodontal regenerative or reconstructive procedures. And um, I have to say, Bob, you know, this has really been a pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to spend some time with you uh, this afternoon, uh, to listen to you, to hear about, uh, you know, how you were inspired to enter into a career of uh, periodontology, periodontal regeneration, and how you have uh, inspired and how you exude your passion uh, for periodontics. And uh, so for me, I've had a chance to hear some things about your career that I did not know. And I know our listeners uh, greatly appreciate uh, having this time with you. And uh, so Bob, on behalf of the Osteology Foundation and myself, uh, I would like to uh, express my extreme gratitude to our legend, uh, Dr. Bob Shalhorn, uh, for spending this time with us and for sharing your insights. And uh, we would like to thank all of you as listeners to this Osteology Foundation podcast for joining us in this legend series. Thank you.